Hello and welcome to the 212 podcast. We created this podcast to talk to people who have been in the arts, entertainment and events industry, and that includes past, present and future talents. Today, we are talking to someone who has taken the current time to really pivot and switch it up after nearly three decades firmly placed in it. He has traveled around the world twice over and worked in a variety of sectors, but his mainstay being the merch business. The bands he has worked on merch for include U2, Pink Floyd, and Tina Turner. We will talk to him about the merch industry and eventually come to his left field, but much more calming choice of career path. Please welcome to the podcast, Rob Kitsis. How are you and where are you today, Rob? I'm very well, Mr. Daniel, and I am in Brighton in sunny UK. Perfect. Um, I might just caveat the uh, the episode today with just saying that I have got a bit of man flu. It's definitely not COVID. So if I do sound like a, a husky and Barry White or, or probably more droopy dog, then that's that's the reason. But <laughs> I just wanted to start as well, Rob, but just kind of going back to where you grew up and what your your love of music and how did you actually get into eventually, I guess, the, the, the industry that you eventually chose to, to, to get into? Yeah, well... I guess it was quite weird how I got into it, but I grew up in northwest London, a leafy suburb called Harrow, which wasn't too far from Wembley. When I was about, I don't know, 16, 17, I'd started playing drums in bands and played with a couple of bands locally, and uh, I wasn't doing very much work. I dropped out of college. So I answered an ad in a local paper because I hadn't been working, and it was for selling T-shirts at Wembley Stadium, Wembley Arena, and because I am into my bands and into my music, I thought, well, I can't be bad, get to see a bit of free music and, you know, sell a few shirts, you know, a bit, bit of good fun. And um, anyway, you know, I went for the interview, got the job and I just one thing led to another and I was working more and more and more and eventually realised that, you know, playing in bands is not going to get me anywhere. So, um, yeah, I ended up just staying, staying in the merch, you know, staying in merch for, well, like you said, almost three decades eventually. How was that living around Wembley as well? That would have, that would have been quite mad chaos uh, kind well, of every I didn't weekend. Really, yeah, I didn't really live like in Wembley. So it was a good 10, 15 minute drive. So it didn't really affect where I lived. But yeah, Wembley itself back in those days, you know, it, was, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the place that it is now. Um, and it, yeah, it was pretty chaotic. But we used to start so early anyway. You know, it was always a free, a free run in there and, uh, you know, you'd fit by the time you finished, everybody had gone. The minute was a straight run back home, but it was long, grueling hours doing, you know, hard work, selling shirts and programs at FA Cup finals, and you know. Oh, so it wasn't boy. just music then. It was it wasn't was just sports music and music. In those. No, no, no. It was it was sports and music because you you served we served the, the concession company that, that ran Wembley within within Wembley Stadium. You know, they serviced both the stadium and and the arena, so you you wouldn't do just. You know, music events, it would be, um, what else did they have there? You know, you'd have loads of football matches, absolutely tons of football matches. So the international school boys, competitions, Europe, I did a European Cup final one year with Sampdoria, Sampdoria and I think it was Barcelona when Koeman scored the most amazing free kick. Um, that was good. That's, that was a good memory. So actually. you got to see all of that as well then? Well, yeah, not supposed to, but we sort of managed to blag it in there, and you know, we stood down the end. It was quite funny because we were down the Italian end when the when the Dutch scored, and I've never seen so many grown men sort of break down in tears at that point. So we uh, sort of got out while the game was good. A bit, a bit, a bit of a sore <laughs> subject, honest. Italians at the moment. A little, it was a little bit, yeah, oh yeah, just a little bit at the moment. So you you grew up in London, and then and then obviously Brighton's your your home now. And, and when did you actually yes. decide to move down there? 2000 and I think I moved down in 2008 I was sort of finishing up I was coming to the end of I think end of touring it had just you know I've been doing it so long at that point that it would it had really sort of taken its toll off my body and my mind and I was just looking for a just a little way out of getting off the road and then in fact a former colleague of mine who I'd worked with on uh, funny enough Pink Floyd in 93 when I first met Dominic we done various stuff together on Pink Floyd and then he I did the Euro 96 with him um did the Euros in yeah 96 at Wembley they came in the concession company came in to take on all the venues in the UK and with that it meant that they kicked Wembley merchandising out so I managed to blag in with him to cover those though that tournament all at Wembley and yeah so we just kept in touch from there and then out of the blue I bumped into him I was with I think I was out 
was it Download Festival in 2007, I think it was. So, yeah, 2007. And I bumped into him. He was doing the event merchandising for, for Download Festival. And we were chatting and stuff. He's like, look, you know, if you're interested, you know, might have a job for you next year. I've got a couple of bands going out. And I said, oh, it's next summer. I don't know. You know, I've no idea what, what's going on, you know, next week, let alone next month. And so anyway, time passed, about six months passed. He rang me in the January and said, you know, I've got this position down in Brighton working in the office. Do you want to come along? What do you think? And I was like, desperate to get off the road at that point. So, yeah, I took it. And, you know, he said, I'll give it a year and see how we get on. And then uh, and I was ended up 12 years later. I was still there until, I suppose, last year when the pandemic hit. And then, you know, I got put on the furlough like every most most people probably did. And then... Uh, I got the good old redundancy last August. You mentioned that as well, that the, you know, I don't know what I'm going to be doing next week. It does feel a little bit like that. That industry does feel a little bit like you're kind of chasing your tail a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's not so bad when you're working, you know, when you're static and you're living in, you're living in, like when I was living in London, working at Wembley, you knew there'd be work every single night of the week, pretty much, you know, in the summers, it was busy with stadium gigs and arena gigs at the same time. And they used to have stuff on the conference center sometimes as well. So, you know, you'd be, there'd be three different venues across the whole site that sometimes had loads of stuff on. So you could sort of work it out like that. You know, you could pick and choose your work and you could work as much or as little as you wanted. But, you know, I ended up working as much as I could because it was just so much work. But when you're actually touring and a lot of the companies that you end up working for, because you, you know, you're freelancer like most people in this industry, you just don't know when the next job's going to come along. So you just you become the yes man all the time. Yes, I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. Because you think, oh, okay, I've got the next three months planned. And you, you, you're working three, four months ahead of yourself, always thinking, right, if I can get the summer out of the way, what am I going to do between October and Christmas? And then everybody panics and you get loads of work. And then January comes, everybody panics because it's quiet. And then you get loads of work because you keep saying yes and you keep saying yes. And I think a lot of people, they, they, they get into that frame of mind. If you say no, you feel like you might drop down the rung of the ladder as well and you might not get more work. So you're just constantly saying yes. So, yeah, you, you can you can be away a lot. And, you know, I sometimes would be away for nine, ten months of the year. If you just, if you added it all up, you know, two, three weeks here, a couple of months there, you know, you, you end up doing as much work as you can because you don't know when the next bit's coming along. I remember you said to me once that you had a couple of friends that kind of worked four or five months of the year and then they just buggered off to somewhere else and, uh, yeah, and just lapped yeah, it up. It, yeah, they did. I mean, for a while, I sort of, I, I did that for a little while. That was great. And it's a really, it's a really nice way to live. But yeah, you can do that in this industry. You can, if you can pick and choose your work and make make that work for you. I mean, there's no reason why, you know, you can work, go out and really smash it and work really hard for say anywhere between seven and eight months of the year and then you could you could potentially get to sort of january when you're stuck in in europe or the uk when it's the middle of winter and disappear somewhere warm for a couple of months you know what does the hard work mean though like in terms of like how long you're working how many hours you're working what okay, what's the sacrifice so, so I guess specifically with merchandising i mean you usually have there's, there's two options you're either self-driving which you, I did a lot of in the early days when I first started doing it. You self-driving like a long wheelbase, or back in the day, you, you know, before the the laws all change, you know, you could you given a seven half ton truck and go there. You go, get to Belgium the first show. And so I remember doing that. I'd never driven a truck in my life. <laughs> no one told me how to do it, and we, I just got in it and off you drove. But you would like some, you know, you, you'd be on your own a lot of the time. So, you know, you're driving ludicrous uh, miles, then you've got to get to the, the venue, then you've got to find your position, and then you've got to set it all up. Bear in mind, everybody else has got crew to help them. You know, as a merchandiser, you're not you're not part of the production. You are part of a production because you're part of the crew. But, you, if, you know, at the end of the day, if, if a band, if you haven't got your T-shirt stand set up, the band can still get on stage. If everything else works, the PA works, the lights work, they don't really care about you. No disrespect to production managers around the world or anybody else that works in crew yes everybody does care about each other but when you're doing your job specifically you know you're on your own when you do merch you know you have to blag beg steal borrow you know you've got to be on your toes doing merchandise it's not a it's not people think it's really easy just selling t-shirts and it's not you know you've got to have cash stock balance every single night i mean you can't be 25 euros or 30 quid out which is equivalent to potentially one shirt you know you got balance exactly otherwise you know you'll be chasing your tail and just, you'll never find your stock and you'll never find the money it's impossible and you know shortages sometimes aren't just as minimal as you know a the equivalent of a shirt you know 
you can be hundreds of pounds down, but then you can find it the next day when you've miscounted stuff or you've miscounted the cash because you've been awake for 15 hours and then you pack the gig up at midnight. You know, then you got you look at your van and you think, I've got another six, seven hour drive and I've got to do all this again. So it's quite relentless when you're on your own. I mean, to be honest, I look back at it now and it's like, what were you, what I used to do? What we used to do was just, it was insane. The amount of hours and distances and the times that we were driving, it was... So as opposed to the Wembley gigs that, that felt like, um, as you were mentioning, it felt kind of quite static, oh, don't get you'd, me you'd go wrong. there. Don't get, me wrong. don't get me wrong, Wembley was hard work. You know, when you're doing stadium gigs for merchandising, you know, at Wembley Stadium, you'd have... God, I should know this, but I can't remember, including the indoor indoor stands at the stadium, the four, five, or sometimes mobile. I mean, you could up to, you could have up to 35, 40 different stands at Wembley Stadium back in those days. I mean, not anymore. It's all changed now because as per when new stadiums and venues get built, no one gives a monkeys about the merch. They give you this pissy little cubby hole. And online, and go, yeah, uh, online you- purchases as well, maybe? <sighs> Mm, yeah that does work now that's something that's just start you know has become more popular you can do click and collect and pick up at gigs and and stuff but back in the day back in the, in in those days back in working at Wembley in the Wembley days I mean you know it was a it's a big it's a big space to move merchandise around you know you'd be in there four or five o'clock in the morning you know setting it you know getting everything set up it would take days to set all the displays up and you know bands would turn up a week three days before the actual show starts just to count the stock you know there'd be 20 of you counting stock for days days and days and days you know just that's not even doing it that's just checking the stock in with the road guide you know and that's not putting it out to the stands that's not staffing it yeah it's a big operation i mean and they're long long hours so you know i think that sort of got me into those days, the early days at Wembley, they, they that was the, I had a good install there. You know, it was it was a good place to learn your trade at Wembley. You know, it was, they got you into it was good routines. They were good people as well. You know, I, I formed some amazing friends, amazing friends. I still got now these days, and you know, a lot of those, a lot of those friends, you know, we all we actually all went off and did U two together in '93, and uh, a lot of those guys are still doing stuff out on the road now. You know, I've made good careers out of it. It was a really good, solid place to learn to learn your trade. It really was. It, was. Was merch uh, kind of, you, you got into it uh, seemingly quite organically. Uh, did you yeah. look at anything else that, that was happening around you that maybe wanted you, you maybe wanted to look at doing other aspects of, of that kind of environment? Or was it just that merch, you know how to do it, let's, I I'm, I'm, I seem to be good at this, let's do that? <laughs> I seem to be good at it. I don't know, people beg, beg that question, I think, <laughs> sometimes. But yeah, it was, no, it was something I, I, I fell into and it's something I just stuck with. You know, I mean, once I got out on, on the road a bit more and you started meeting people that do lights and sound and, you know, guitar techs and drum techs. I thought, well, maybe I could do that. But I never really got the opportunity because, you know, you were so busy doing merch. I mean, you know, some people do branch out into different sectors of, of the touring industry, but I just stuck in merch because I were, always worked with really good people. You know, all the companies I've ever worked with, you know, over the years, I've, you know, there's not many of them. You know, it's quite a small industry, our industry, the merchandise industry. So you get to know everybody in all the companies and you generally get, work off most people if i'm honest and they're a good bunch of people you know hard asses some of them you know and they you know you can't blag them because you know they're the blaggers <laughs> you know <laughs> they're the blaggers you know it's, it's a it's a you gotta be tough in this it's a really hard it's a really hard game to be in merch gotta be gotta talk a lot of shit you do have to talk loads of shit <laughs> absolutely bin loads of shit it's unbelievable so much shit that you can't see what you do you don't you, so much shit Dan. you even believe your own shit in the end <laughs> yeah yeah that, that was a good one yeah what was the you, you mentioning there like in terms of the amount uh that you would potentially sell back in uh, well i mean throughout your career you know as you said like three decades what was the what's the best gig that you can remember in your head in terms of just the sheer amount of amount that you sold like what was the what was one of the best gigs god blimey that's a i'm trying to think now what was who are pretty big sellers like that because i remember one that you said i mean i was surprised at it but what's the what's the chef uh, that you were working with paul oh, Gina, Gina, oh, oh paul hollywood yeah yeah, well, Hollywood. Yeah, people will go mad for his stuff. It's funny, you know, you get the, the little niche ones sometimes, and it's not so much the standard. I mean, the things that always listen. The big money makers in merch are always going to be metal. 
it's always heavy metal rock you know they love that they love their shirts man they really do indie's a little bit different a little bit more selective no not all about that they'd rather get pissed and cause chaos whereas metal crowds they look scary but they're the nicest people you never get any problems at the gigs really ever that's bloodstock what, yeah amazing you know you remember bloodstock band yeah. in your lovely tent tent i got you <laughs> with no poles <laughs> with no poles yeah yeah it's just a flat Poor tent Dan. i'll let Dan, i'll let daniel explain that story at some point <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but you know you you've done that you work with me on that on, on, on those events and stuff and you, you know how insane that it can be and how loud it is and how busy it is so you've seen it firsthand and that's just uh, you know that's a small 10,000 it's not small but it's a 10, 10 to 15,000 capacity gig but the amount of people that buy shirts at it, it is incredible you know but that's metal you know download download festivals I mean they're insane their merch sales how many because all the bands bring so much in it's just it's potty is so it a much money dog like amongst merch yeah, people absolutely absolutely is yeah how many yeah. how many kind of people would uh, say download for instance? How many people would there be that that are, are trying to sell the same stuff? It's something that when you you've got you've got to see it to see how much stock <laughs> someone can go through. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's hard when when you see a truck pull up and it's a forty five foot Arctic and they start pulling boxes out and you think right okay he's gonna they're gonna stop unloading in a minute and you're gonna stop unloading in a minute and then there's these still going and you're still counting and you're looking at them going. What are you doing? And they're like, don't worry, you're going to sell this. You think, I fucking hope so, because I'm going to count it all at the end. So <laughs> you've got to take it all fucking back, right? So you better sell it, because I don't want to count this all at the end. And, you know, nine times out of ten, sure as shit, any decent road guy will give you the stock that you need. You know, they know their gigs. I mean, i tell you who, who who else move a lot. Metallica move a lot of stuff. They're a big merch seller. What metal kid doesn't want a Metallica T-shirt these days? Ever, always, you know? The iconic stuff always sells, doesn't it? You know. When I guess they become you know? like the Stones become like more of a commercial outfit as well because they're selling. Yeah, maybe the, maybe the Stones is you know, you know maybe not the Stones so much. I mean, they still don't get me wrong; they still move some gear, but you know, people like you know the ACDCs and the Metallicas. You know, they really do shift. They really do shift merchandise. You know, people love it. It's a way of life for metalheads. They love their shirts. So. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. What's the what? What did you find the difference in terms of nineties to noughties? Is there was there a, was there a big shift in in the merch game like between if those? I, if, I, if, I, if I honestly can tell you what I remember from the nineties is pointless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's pretty pointless, man, because it's a bit of a haze. Uh, the people became a little. They they became a lot more sort of fashion conscious. You know, and the cuts and the, what the shirts are made of. People don't want to buy sweatshop shirts, you know, anymore. They don't want to. They want to know where it's come from. They want to know if the cotton's organic. You know, this is a bit geeky, but you know, they want to know this stuff. You know, they don't want to buy a shirt that's been, you know, had like a load of kids had to make it under duress. And you know, that back in the nineties, I guess all the shit nobody really thought about that stuff because you know, I look at some of the shirts I've still got, and I've got thousands of shirts. Don't ask me why, but I just still have thousands of shirts that I, you know, my girlfriend's got driving me mad. Just throw it all away. You never wear it, and I'm like, no, no, I might wear it one day. She's like, you're never going to wear that. It's awful. <laughs> it's a small um, Rob. You're not a small yeah, anymore. Nah, hang on, man, a minute. You, you haven't seen me for a while, Daniel, have you? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, you haven't seen me for a while. Raking bunkers and cutting holes and running around on a golf course like from five in the morning has made me quite a fit, fit person again. But there is quite a big difference from like the 90s. Although I probably wasn't so much aware back then, you know, I, I was really young and not really did the, paying did attention. Did the tech change as well? Like, is that something that made uh, it different? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, if you look at, you know, just online stores now, what you can do. I mean, back in the 90s, there was, you know, when I was first, when I first got into there wasn't even internet, man. Didn't even have mobile phones. There was nothing. You know, it was proper dark. You know, if you look back now, it was proper dark ages, man. It was, yeah, you, you, you didn't have anything like that. You turned up to the show you and you have mail order. You know, you go into the back of NME or back into Kerrang, you'd mail order some shows. So I remember once when I was a, I was a massive Mr. B- Mr. Faith No More fan and uh, I used to also like uh, the other band that he was in uh, Mr. Bungle for a while and I uh, ended up having to send off to America to get these shirts sent over um, and it was all done by mail order and out of the back of out the back of uh, uh, Kerrang or the NME I can't remember so that's that's the way you did it back then and it was you know bear in mind I was like probably about 18 19 and weighed about eight stone I bought an XL shirt what a good look that was in the 90s eh? mm-hmm. 
Do you have some nice flares still... to go with that? No, I didn't have the flares. Come on, man. Didn't have the flares. You mentioned earlier about this, and, I, and it is something that I wanted to talk to you about. The industry, I don't think it's merch specifically, but I think the industry breeds a culture of getting kind of fucked up. And I wondered how the partying was for you in terms of, you know, you, you, I mean, you flippantly said that you don't remember the 90s, but I mean, it's like, what, like, do you think it does breed that culture? And, and how was that partying um, for you? It was amazing. I loved it. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. But, you know, you worked hard and you played hard. <laughs> because it's there, it's there if you want it and you can do it and no one really said, well, what are you doing? You can't really do that because it's it's a really weird world to work in, you know? It's not like people get up and, you know, go to the office and, you know, sit around and get smashed out of their heads at the office. Not that I would get smashed out of my head at, at work, but afterwards it was always days off always carnage and but yeah i mean i've seen it with with people you know get well about well out well above their stations and people become a little bit i've seen road guys that think they're in the band you know you just you know you got to always remember you know you're just the, you're a merchandiser and you sell t-shirts like the guy that twiddles with the lights he's the lighting guy that's what he does you know that's what you do you're not in the band i've seen guys hanging out with bands in dressing rooms drinking out their fridges and it's like mate what are you doing you know, you shouldn't should really, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, you're there to do a job. You know, you're not there to hang out with the band and they're your mates. They're not your boss, but, you know, you're working indirectly for them. But, but on the other side of it, you know, a lot of the bands that you work with, you you gel and you, you, you become like a little family with people, you know, um, especially if you spend, you can spend three or four or five years. I mean, I know guys that have been with some bands, been with them for decades been working with them and they always tour with them all the time all over the world and you just get put on a pedestal at places you know you you everything's free you know you don't pay for alcohol you know your buses are loaded every night from the promoter you get the riders put on the bus it's always beer vodka wine temptation man it's 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 there if if you're that way if you're that way inclined and you want to do that it's a really good place to do it and, and christ you can have a really good time and, and party a lot but and you, you can also, also go the other side. Yeah, oh God, yeah, man, that was me. I was the dark man. I was always in the dark quite a lot. <laughs> it was, you know, it was chaos, absolute chaos sometimes. But the amount of hours that you that you work as well, you mentioned in that as well, you, you probably, not just you, but I mean, in general, you probably do need something extra to, you, to get you, you up and something. about. Well, yeah, to that you do. and But you need that to be able to let off that steam because it's so intense. You know, you think about the hours that you do, right? You would never get up in the morning and go, right, I'm off to work for the next 18, 19 hours. And in between that, I'm going to probably not get any sleep and then drive for another five or six and then probably pull over in some moody services somewhere in the middle of Germany and sleep with your head on the window and then get up when you wake up and then drive off to and then go straight into work, literally. So when you do get like a couple of days off, you do want to let loose quite a lot because you haven't been able to or, you know, you've been stuck on your own for days. But sometimes I would do some tours in the summers when, you know, a lot of the American bands will come over and do the festival circuits in the summers. I mean, I remember one, I was one year I was touring with Marilyn Manson and I drive from, drove from London to Madrid to do the first show. And then we went to Portugal. And then I remember the, 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 the production manager going, right, we're all flying to Scandinavia to do three or four shows. Well, you know, I'm in a van, so there's no way I'm making that gig. So all the stuff for those festivals has always been, had always, already, already been freighted by the merch company that I was doing the work for. No, they, you know, they, they go into it well beforehand. They do all the advancing. They check, okay, so there's no way that he's going to be able to get from Lisbon to Stockholm and then up to Helsinki. So you're going to drive to Amsterdam. That's what I had to do. But I had like 10 days to get there. You know, I've got golf clubs in the back of the van. I stopped at the beach for a few days, <laughs> went and had a couple of rounds of golf. So it's the rough with the smooth. Sometimes you would work your balls off really, really hard. And then, you know, you knew that you had quite a few days off on certain tours. But it never always panned out like that. But I imagine uh, it's it's tiring to do that, though, so often. Yeah, it is. It does become very, very tiring. But you, you become accustomed to it, you know. I think it's a mental thing as well. You sort of, if, if you sat there and actually physically thought when you got up in the morning, right, today I'm going to 
carry about half a ton of cotton into a venue and shift it around three different stands. And then I'm going to maybe, maybe have some lunch if I've got the time or if I get to catering, it's probably been packed away and all I've got is the gnarly ends of the bit of broken pizza that are left on the plate. You know, that's if you have catering in some places. Then you think about, I've got to stand there, I've got to count it all, make sure it all balances at the end of the night, deal with a load of idiots nine times out of ten. Uh, what size am I? I don't know. How old are you? 40? Well, how, why don't you know your own? You shouldn't be out then if you don't know your own size, man. What's the matter with you? You know, get out. I'm not serving you next. But <laughs> it wasn't quite that harsh. But <laughs> you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed at the, you know, the, the, the stupid questions that you get. So you'd have to deal with that. So mentally, you have to prepare yourself for a, a day of madness. And then once you packed it all up, you've got, you've got hope that it all balances and all your numbers are right, which generally they are. And then you've got to pack it all up on your own again, get in the van and off you go again. And that's, you know, and you've got to try and stay awake at this point because it's it's midnight, one o'clock in the morning, depending on what time you've got out. And uh, you look at the map and you go, oh, you've only got a 400 mile drive. So you're going to take me eight and a half hours. You know, while everybody else gets on the bus and goes to sleep, you're sitting in a van driving and you've got, you're on your own. So, yeah, it, 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 mentally, you've got to break it down into various points. And when you get when you when you can get rest, that's what I used to do. Just try and rest as much as you. But it never inevitably it didn't end up rest. It was just carnage on, on days off. <laughs> you yeah. end up absolutely smashed in places. It was brilliant. Can you remember the like the the time where you'd done like the most days consecutive where you were like actually my body's gonna give in if I don't take yes, a break? Yes, I do actually, and it's quite a prominent it's a quite a prominent moment I remember, and I was thinking I can't how much longer can I keep doing this? Well, I think I'm going to die. And uh, a friend, a mate of mine that I did a bit of work for now, rang me up because I've got this tour, so it's a metal tour, and it's in conjunction with Roadrunner Records, okay, so, which is a big sort of metal thrash death metal label, I think. He said, I've got all the bands. There was three bands on the bill, I think, plus the event merchandising. So he said, I need you to look after it all. And I was like, all right, okay. So I said, send us through the dates. And when I looked at it, I rang about, I said, Randy, are you sure? And he was like, I said, <laughs> there's no, there's, it's like 30, 31 days. He went, yeah. I said, there's two days off. And he went, yeah. And, I went, and those two days off are only because the buses and the truck can't physically the drives they can't drive it legally in one hit so they have to stop so they have to have a day off and he's like yeah i said i can't do this on my own it was like it was like 28 days of solid work and and a busy a busy gig as well so i convinced i convinced the guy that i was doing the job for us let let me take someone with me i can't drive and physically do this on my own so it's near or impossible I just brought a mate along with me to help me do it, just to drive him. And he nearly jumped after the second show. I had to convince him to stay. But he eventually got through it. He was like, I don't know how you do this. I bet it was hard, hard work, really was. You know, awful. A lot of driving, you know, long hours. Yeah, I think the biggest one we did was Lisbon to Manchester. I think we did it in three days, solid. Just didn't stop. That's a long People don't necessarily think of that though, as well. They, they, they think of the touring part of the the, the being there, but they don't think of the actual. No. I mean, listen, don't get me wrong. The other side to that is, you know, I've done tours where I've been on tour buses and all my stock's been on a truck. Get Don't get that. And that's when the proper carnage starts. If you get on a good party bus, woo! You know, that's uh, that was one long hangover for a long time, man, for me. <laughs> do, you, do you remember? You, oh, you don't have to say the person, but do you remember the, the, the best party bus that you were on? I do. I do. Um, and it was with with Tool, actually, metal band Tool. Yeah, that was great fun. That was a very good crew of people. And it was, uh, yeah, yeah, we had good fun on that. I really enjoyed myself. (laughs) You can just hear it in the voice that you probably didn't have a good (laughs) one. I think I did. I don't know. (laughs) Let loose a little bit. Rob hasn't worked with them for over 30 years now since that tour. (laughs) Uh, I did a couple of tours of them. Like, yeah, they, yeah, I did do a couple of tours of them stuff. And uh, funnily enough, I was out in Japan with another band and the tour finished and I bumped and I was in a bar uh, at the time in Osaka. And I, we were out, we were with band in question that I was with at the time. We were out, we got, we'd done a few shows in Tokyo, we'd done Yokohama and we got to Osaka and we had the night off in Osaka. And there's a famous bar in Osaka called... Uh, called the rock rock bar and uh it's just all the all the bands when they go there it's a good little after after gig after gig place to go to and sort of a few and have a few or many drinks and uh 
yeah, and I turned around and I was sort of standing there having a few drinks with some of the guys and uh, I turned around and there's all the, all the crew from, from Tom standing in there. Now, that was a massive party that night. That was that was good fun. That was a good one to remember um, or not remember, to be honest. Yeah, it was a bit of a, again, that was another one that was a bit, a bit of a blur. Is, that, is, is Japan one of the best places you've been to? Because I know you've like you've even mentioned to me a few times, like just Japan in in particular. But you've travelled all around the world. Is that one of the best places that you that you always love going back to? Work wise, yeah. I mean, Japan was it's really weird in Japan. I mean, I lived there outside of doing merchandise. I took a few years out between sort of ninety ninety six and two thousand. I sort of just bummed around Asia and you know did various odd jobs and travelled. And I was, I was very lucky at the time to go to Japan. I spent six months out there just working for a, for a cabling company. I was installing data cabling companies. And uh, that was really, really quite uh, – I've been, been based in Hong Kong for, for a while. And uh, the culture in Hong Kong being an ex-British territory, you know, it wasn't too far removed from the UK too much. You had a lot of uh, expats there. And it was a massive melting pot of Hong Kong. So anyway, I'll cut a long story short, I ended up going to Japan with this company. And uh, the culture out there is something so far removed from anything that I'd seen after sort of living and traveling around Southeast Asia for a good part of three, four years. Japan was something that's so out there that it's impossible. I could really struggle to get my head around the culture out there. Loved it. Don't get me wrong. It was a brilliant place, but it was very different to anywhere else that I'd been. Boy, growing up in London to go to Japan would have been. Well, yeah, it was really, it was sort of, how did I get here sort of thing? You know, it was like, this is, you know, two years ago, I was standing in Wembley Arena, probably counting T-shirts. And here I am sort of pulling data cables on the 65th floor in the middle of Yokohama. (laughs) <laughs> what did your what did your mates that you grew up with think about it yeah they thought it was pretty mental what i was doing and they were excited about it they thought oh amazing you know you're touring with all these bands and i'm like it's not what it is <laughs> it's not really honestly like that you get to see the world and it's like you get to see the inside of a bus when you get to see the inside of a venue which is generally on the arse end of town and you don't really get into a lot of these towns depending on what the schedules are like as well i mean some gigs you could be in the center of a city or some places if you're in arenas generally they're, they're on the outskirts because you know when they built them back and when they built them they're out in the center of town so you didn't really you didn't have time either a lot of the time you didn't have you, you didn't have the time to start you know go sightseeing you're busy working so days off i miss that's what i used to really enjoy was a day off on a bus you go to bed and you could be somewhere in germany and you wake up and you're in switzerland or you're in france and it's somewhere completely different and you know, so I, think I quite enjoyed days off like that. I used to enjoy sort of <clears throat> having that having that option of like, you know, today I'm going to wander around Paris or tomorrow I'm going to be having a day off in Amsterdam. So always quite enjoyed that. But in the sense of like getting to see everything all the time and in a lot of the places you go to, I wouldn't say that I would, I've been to these places, but I wouldn't say I've seen, a, you know, a good 40% of them. I probably wouldn't have even been into the city centres or into the towns just purely simply because you haven't got the time. It sounds sometimes when you talk about it, it sounds quite mechanical. Um, and I wondered if you uh, had the opportunity to uh, be doing merch for someone or be at a festival that you've been to, where you've been a bit starstruck by someone that you have actually seen. Yes, there was uh, quite a few actually. You know, especially in the early days when I think it was yeah, it was we were in, did the first time I our first proper tour I did was in '93 with you too. Um, and that was with a very good mutual friend of ours, Mr. Caldwell, and we were both out. We were both on that out on that together, and we got to Italy. And I remember looking on the day sheets at the first show in Verona, and I clearly remember this. And there was it was Pearl Jam supporting you two the whole the whole way of the Italy show of all the Italian shows. And I remember the band seeing the band just walking around, and they were you now this is in their early days. You know they weren't they were big, but they were just getting somewhere. And I was. I just I didn't know what to say. I think I, they all say came over to drop their merch off, and I, I was sort of thinking, everybody was like Rob's was closing mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Put your tongue away. What's the matter with you, man? I remember once coming out of finishing up at work. I was did some stuff with Justin Timberlake back in two thousand and four, I think, early two thousand, something like that. And we finished the show at Manchester Arena, and it was I was going backstage the production office and it, everything was fair. I was going I can't remember what I was going to get but there's big double doors as you go past the catering as you're backstage in Manchester Arena and uh, it was the, the time when uh, Justin was going out with um, Cameron Diaz 
And uh, I mean, I was trapped to someone and I just put my hands out to open these big double doors. And the next thing I was like, I've missed, there's no doors there. And uh, I turned around and my hands, both hands are just firmly on Cameron Diaz's chest as they'd been coming through the doors. <laughs> and uh, Justin Timberlake's standing next to me and these two huge security guys are looking at me and I'm just like, ah. I mean, that was fucking a little bit awkward, man. But uh, they all laughed it off. But yeah, a bit weird. That was a little bit strange, if I'm honest. Talking of uh, weird, what is the because uh, you've you've done like the big bands, and obviously we spoke about the 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 chef uh, Paul Holly, um, Hollywood yeah, yeah. one as well. What's the weirdest one that you've worked at? What's the weirdest? The weirdest, weirdest. What couple of weird ones I've done? A couple of weird ones. Miranda sings. You know the comedian, comedian. Yeah. The American girl YouTuber. We did stuff. Did stuff for her a few years back, and uh, I'd never heard of her. And I thought, who is this? Why are we printing so much stock? I mean, this is crazy. Man, I've never seen so much money come over a stand in like a very short space of time, over the somebody I'd never even heard of. That was weird. And it was just like kids, really young kids going, I want this, I want that. And parents, just so many disgruntled parents just handing over their cars and just venomously going, just take the money. <laughs> and you feel awful, you know. You see, you're just charging absolute extortion amounts of money for a load of old toot. <laughs> really, it's, you are. It's, it's a bit shocking. And But the kids, you know, what are you going to do? The parents are going to go, well, you're, you're bastards, really, because you're charging us, you know, 25 quid a T-shirt for a kid. <laughs> so I don't make the prices, man. Do you want to buy it or not? If you don't, next. <laughs> and they always come back, I'm not paying that. All right, then, OK, don't pay it. I'll have to. Fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> always i used to all get it all the time oh, I'll, I'll give you two for uh, i'll give you two for 30 for cash and i'm like man look look at the price on the board dude what does it say 25 pound each I says 50 quid are you thick is your mathematics no good <laughs> right next you're really rude i want to speak to the manager so what i used to do is turn around take off my hat and go yes i'm the manager how can i help you today and generally that would they'd sort of leave sort of huffing and puffing which is always they will me. be back they will be back they, they always come back they come back for a T-shirt, really pissed up, and then they buy like three or four items. It's strange the people that do follow. We, we've just finished watching that Wild Wild Country, and oh, amazing! I've seen that a lot. Oh, I loved it. It's mental. I loved it. Funny enough, just... man. Sorry, sorry yeah, to cut you off there. But funny enough, I had friends, friends, a few friends of mine that um, have actually been to his, and I've actually been to his ashram in Pune in India, and uh, friends of mine have been there, and they were sort of—I don't say they were fully immersed into it, but they were—you know—they got into it, and I was just like, "Nah, man, ain't for me." You know, it was all a bit nuts. But yeah, yeah sorry. I, no, no, no. I, and that's it's kind of what I was going to say is is that I know you know Burning Man isn't isn't necessarily culty culty. You know, it's not it's not maybe in its infancy Burning Man was, but you know, it's such a corporate thing now, surely. But, but yeah, that's what I was going to say. There, there is something about the freedom. You know, the businessmen and the builders and the chefs all together for the same reason. I, I wondered, like, why do you think people um, go somewhere like that? Somewhere like Burning Man, you mean? Burning Man, or, or or that they get wrapped up in these in these festivals or events. It's almost like a you know they save up all of their energy for like this one weekend where they just blow it all up in the air. You know? I don't know. Maybe it's just you know when they first the first time they go, it has such a, a, a pro- prolific effect on people. You know, you know, it, it can. I mean, I've, you know, you got, we've all had those life-changing moments at gigs and, and events or you've been somewhere and it's like just completely opens the chasms of your dusty mind a little bit. And you're just like, wow. And you can see see can see how some people sort of really buy in, you know, buying into the whole brand of something, you know. You know, I know guys that used to come. There's a one guy in particular used to used to come every year to Bloodstock. He comes every year to Bloodstock and he comes with like two empty suitcases. And he every day he'll come in and every, he'll buy a T-shirt of every new band that's coming in that day. And I remember someone asking him once, they said, mate, why do you buy? He's like, because I, I love my band T-shirts. And he goes, I don't go on holiday. I save all my money all year to come to this gig. And I buy all loads of T-shirts. And I was like, right, OK, whatever. But, you know, you're always going to get those people. You know, people are always trying to buy... I think people are always going to try and want to buy into something, you know. They need that little bit of fantasy, I guess. Well, I guess it makes them feel like they've around their people as well. I'd, I thought that with Bloodstock where, you know, they it feels almost like a bit of a – it's a bit cliche, but, I mean, it feels a bit like a, a family, you know. They're, they're around people. Oh, it is. Like-minded oh, that, people. That, that, Bloodstock's 100%. It's pure family, man. 
Uh, that is an amazing event, and the people that run it, you know, all the way down from, you know, down to us, you know, us. Well, I don't even do it anymore. But you know, even down to when I was working there, you know, it, it, it was everybody pitched in together and everybody helped everybody out. You know, and it, it's exactly that. Even when you know when the, when the crowds come in, everybody looks after each other. There's no, I never saw any grief at Bloodstock ever. Like it, it's just yeah, that was the most an amazing little festival. It really is. Yeah, what's the what's the best the best kind of vibe that you've had at a festival? Like everyone chanting or singing, or the just the energy that you can feel in the room. Which do you remember like one that really just felt like wow? I mean, actually, this is pretty crazy. Back in the early nineties, I grew up with a mate of mine who ended up playing keyboards in left field, and uh, we went to the album launch over the old GLC building in. Uh, on the South Bank, I don't which obviously I don't think it's even there. The GLC things probably you won't even remember that, Dan. But that was like one of the most amazing evenings I'd had. Just it was mind blowing, mind blowing. So, so he was playing at left in left field. He was yeah he was he, yeah he was playing in left field and it was just as you know uh, that album broke you know their, their first album really broke. We got invited invited us along said look we've got the album launch we're throwing this big party you know come along so I did. But it just was an experience that, yeah, that definitely altered my mind. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and some. M- melted, uh, melted some of it. Melted, away. yeah, uh, melted all the cerebral cores away, man. <laughs> <laughs> when did it become less of a jolly and more of a drag for you? I think once I'd come off the road and I came and worked down here with Dom when I came to work for Dom at B-Merch, made me realise, you know, as a small... I'd been working for, for some for big companies that had, you know, really decent big bands on the books. And then I'd, I'd gone to work for Dom and, you know, he was he'd had, was doing Bon Jovi at the time and, you know, it was a pretty big thing for him. And, you know, it, it was a real good gig for him to start with. But um, as an independent, I, mean, I knew nothing about, nothing how the business worked, that side of it. You know, I'd always always been on the road and always been on the front line selling and, and dealing with stock at venues. So, but to be in that position where you actually learn the business of merchandise and how the deals are made and how the prints work and and just how a, a business like that, you need to, how you need to run it and all the logistics of putting tools together and events, you know, it's a completely different ball game to being on the front line. I used to sit there when I was on the road going, bloody hell, those blokes in the office, all they do is sit around all day and blah, blah, blah. You don't realise the amount of work that they have to do before you even get out on the road. The amount of work that's done before you've even got out on the road is, you know, it's a lot. You know, and you just don't, you, you shouldn't really take it take it for granted. So, yeah, that's when I sort of realised, I was like, okay, this is a lot more serious than just, you know, touring and selling shirts. Not that, you know, doing that job was equally important, um, because it was, you know, because you, you need good guys on the road. You need people that, you know, that can do their numbers, that you can trust with the dough and you can, you know, know that the job's going to get done and they're fiercely independent and they can look after themselves. I mean, if you're a bit of a, if you're a bit of a creeping wallflower, do not go into merchandising because you'll get swallowed up and spat out instantly. <clears throat> I mean, I've seen people reduce, I've been reduced to tears before. It's reduced me for tears at certain gigs. You know, it's just, it just breaks you down <laughs> after a while you know, it's 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 not it's not for the faint-hearted, absolutely not. So you've got to be you've got to be pretty confident. And if you're not, you either learn, you either learn to be, and you you know you, you grow you grow a set, or you just go, do you know what, man, this is insane. This is not for me. And a lot of people go, this is insane. No, this is not for me. Yeah, it's difficult. It's, it's, is, it, is it just the is it just the pace in which you have to work? I think so. I don't. I think people first of all, when they say it's selling t-shirts, they don't realise. What the like I was saying earlier, the amount of hours, man, man hours that go into just being on the road, right? That's not taking on board what's gone on before that, the printing of the shirts, the deal to get that band on board, you know, the schmoozing that has to go on board. It can take you years to get some clients, or you can get them really quickly because you pay them a lot of money. It all depends which routes you want to go down. I mean, you know, there's a lot of companies that, of guys that have got have kept their clients for years and years and years because they get on with them and they might leave one merch company and and go to another, but they'll take their roster with them. You know, it's all about. You know, I think I think it's it's the experience in this game is pays your dividends. You know, it's not something that you can walk into and if you don't know what you're doing, be amazing at it within six months. 
it's something that takes a lot of, you know, it takes years of experience, really. And the, the best way to do it, if anybody wanted to get into merch, like I said, don't. <laughs> don't do it if you really if you really don't if you really you really don't want to have to but if you if it's something that you'd like to get into it's like go work at a venue and work your way up at a venue i know it's something we spoke about before you stepped away from the industry but it was a couple of years ago that you you started to look at other things and is it is it that you just didn't get that buzz you normally do or is that is that the main reason you chose to do something else or well no i mean i not really i mean like everybody else, you know, this pandemic hit, I was sitting at work, you know, last March and obviously when it all kicked off, Dom was like, right, you know, everybody's got to go home. We all went on furlough. And while I was on furlough, I mean, for a cast cup, I think a couple of years before previous to the pandemic kicking in, I was sitting around and I was like, oh God, you know what, man, I don't know if I really want to do this. What am I going to do this for the rest of my life? You know, I was like, I've got to find something else to do. And anyway, it's one of those things I always sat there and procrastinated about, never did anything about. And then obviously the pandemic's hit and the weather was amazing. And I was sitting in the garden, sort of fiddling around, didn't like the look of that. And next thing I know, I'm digging holes and I'm planting things. I'm like, I can't enjoy this. And inevitably, you know, you know me, Dan, you know, I like, you know, I love my golf. I ended up speaking to the guys at the golf course and they were like, look, we've got some part part-time job, you know, if you want to do some hours a week do some greenkeeping we'll show you what to do and i was like yeah come on then and uh so i so i started doing that and then i got maybe redundant in august with dom at b merch purely because of what's gone on and as a small company man you know he's obviously looked at, he's, he's had to look at everything and go this is just not going to work so i took the redundancy but i knew at that point you know i was like right i'm definitely this is a good opportunity to get out now so i did and i signed up went to college i'm now a qualified rhs gardener and I'm learning to green keep, and I love it. <laughs> How much happier are you doing? Like that's that's the thing. How much happier are you doing that than? At the moment, right? It's 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 real peaks and troughs. I mean, financially, you know, the money's nowhere near the same at the moment. But you know, I'm still I'm still trying to establish myself, as, you know, as a gardener, and you know, learning. It's it's all very well going to college and and sort of reading about stuff and being shown what to do. But, you, you know, it's like anything, you need the experience. And, you know, I've been sort of put myself put myself in the, the deep end and I've been, you know, doing my own private stuff with with gardens and, and people around Brighton since October last year, really. I mean, kept it really low key, you know, a few people each week and I built it up and built it up. And I'm actually getting to the point now where I'm, you know, I'm sort of turning work down. So look, if you need me, it's going to be at least two or three week wait. But that's the summers, right? So I've, I'm now evidently looking towards autumn when it's going to be busy. But winter, you know, it quietens down a little bit. So it's still a learning curve for me. But the golf course, I'm loving. You know, I get up there at like half five every morning. You know, I go out there, I do my bunkers, cut the holes, you know, fix the greens, jump on the mowers. It's brilliant, you know, and I'm done by, I'm sort of done by half past 10, 11. I come home for an hour and then I'm back out in back out in the car and off to off to do clients doing the gardens it's you know i'm, I'm really enjoying it i'm on my own i work for myself it's, it feels it's, it's, it's it's not too dissimilar to being to being on the road except you haven't got the madness you know so i was always quite being always quite used to my own company in that in that sense not that i was always ever on my own when you're on the road i mean you, you get to hang out with them. You see the same people every day if you're on a tour anyway. So you get to talk to people. Or you, over the years, I met so many different people that you'd meet at venues. And you'd always see them when you went back. So I built up a lot of friends in Europe and around the world. Of You know, the first couple of times you might go to a town you'd never been to, you don't know anybody. But guaranteed, by the third or fourth time, there's always on a day off, you'd be calling someone, hey, hey, hey you know, Frank, I'm here, man. I'm in Milan. I'm going to come, come out for dinner. Yeah, sure. Next night you're in Vienna and you call Fritz up and you go out for some schnitzel or, you know, there's, in the end it was, you know, I had lots of friends all over the place. So days off weren't, days off weren't um, ever boring, let's say. But no, in that respect, going back to what I'm doing, what I'm doing now, I mean, you know, to just to be out on my own in the afternoons and or it doesn't bother me working on my own. I feel that I can, you know, I'm quite productive on my own because I suppose it was installed into me when I was doing what I used to do. You know, you've got to get on with it. You know, no one's going to help you. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to, you've got to solve a lot of problems. And that definitely stems back from, from the merch days because you just left to get on with stuff, man. It also feels like a lot of people would know the same, you know, when you're in a bad relationship and people stay there for, you know, a good couple of years uh, longer than they probably should have. Maybe that's your your bad relationships merch. 
probably in the end, yeah, I think it, it, it was. I think it's nice to have like new starts with stuff. I mean, it, it's a bit, it's all been a bit, you know, it's still a bit of a roller coaster and it's still a bit scary. But um, yeah, I'm so glad that I, I was in a position to be able to, I was sort of pushed, really. I suppose I was pushed in a way, you know, it was like I was forced um, to look for something else to do because, like everybody else in this pandemic, it's like, you know, lots of people, not just me, but I'm, and I'm you know, not, not in my industry, but in a lot of industries, lots of people have lost their jobs. And, you know, you've got to, all of a sudden, you know, after 30 odd years of doing merchandise, it's like, what else do I know? You know, that was the first thing that sort of set in. I was like, right, okay, what, what am I going to do? Because I, you know, I came straight from school pretty much. At 16, I was selling T-shirts, 16, nearly 17. I think I was still 16 when I did my first ever event at Wembley Arena, which was England versus Cameroon in a February. And it was freezing. And I was thinking to myself, what am I doing? This is awful. <laughs> little did I know. Little did I know. <laughs> you'd, be on a, you'd be on a green. Yeah, little did I know. Yeah, 30 years later, I'm standing on a golf green. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'd never. you could never have called that one. Rob, we're coming to the end of the episode now, and it's been great having you on. And I just wondered if you had any kind of message to, I guess, anyone that probably is, I guess, looking to get out and probably wanted to get out sooner rather than later in in any uh, industry that are in, in they're in in the events yeah, art and entertainment. Yeah, you got you just got to have faith and take that jump. As much as as scary as it seems, it's like you know there were times where I sat there for what I'm like, is this is so frightening, you know. Uh, what am I going to do myself? Oh, I'm, am I too old to learn something? You're never too old to learn anything. You, you know, just just do it. You know, you find a way. You know, you su- we survive. You will survive. You're not going to you're not going to get swallowed up and end up homeless. And people people will look out for you. You know, and they do. You know, I've been so lucky with with everybody around me. Drew, I've had so much great support, and you will get. You know, people do get it, and you know, just go for it. Uh, you know, don't be don't be afraid. Although it seems like you are jumping off a massive tall building at certain points, when you do hit that bottom part, you do bounce back up, and it is you know, and you get those highs again. It's quite nice. It's quite invigorating, if I'm honest. It's a really everybody should do it at once. You know, get out of that comfort zone. You know, and you really do learn a lot about yourself. You really do. Rob Kitts is is a good way to end. Thank you for joining us on this episode, and really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Absolute pleasure speaking to you. Take care. We have partnered with Podlike for all production and audio needs. They are the masters in podcast wizardry. So if you are looking for someone to lend you a helping hand, look no further than Tom and the team at Podlike.